You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. During the Revolutionary War, from Quebec to Florida, from New York to Yorktown, from 1776 to 1781, Americans fought not only the British Redcoats, but also German allies, commonly referred to as Hessians. It was a part of the deal between certain city-states in Germany. Germany was not yet unified during our Revolutionary War and the British Army. It was not a unique deal. Indeed, Hesse Castle, which was the principal German city-state where troops originated from, was the premier rent-and-army power in Europe. It was a fairly small Landgraviate or principality. The population, about 275,000 people. Now, normally, you know, from a population of 275,000 people, you wouldn't be able to produce an army, you know, that's, that's that large. You might be looking at, you know, an army of a real military fighting force of, you know, 20 to 40,000. That's in an emergency situation, you know, but things in Hess Castle were a little bit different. Uh, because there were little ma- little sources of income, just some farming, really not much above the substance level, and the taxation that could be developed from those farms, Hesse looked to a new industry. It rented out its men, and it also, from the prince on down, trained its men, drilled its men, sometimes on a daily basis, in the art of fighting. It became a major source of income. Britain had used the tropes from Hesse Castle in several wars. And indeed, since the prince of Hesse Castle was George III's uncle, you know, that added a little family connection to this business deal. Britain paid a retainer to ensure that at any time it needed it, Hesse Castle had 12,000 troops on the ready to offer it. Now, why do they do that? The British, during the Revolutionary War, had a large navy, but not so large an army. Britain did not have the population to support an army. It didn't have the budget to support an army for all of the lands that it possessed. And it was stretched out what little it had across the world. So this, I think, is in the background of thinking of many Americans. And when Alexander Hamilton is talking to uh, Seabury, in his famous letters with the, with this loyalist reverend who didn't want to fight the American Revolution and sees the American Revolution as a, you know, a mildly difficult but definitely accomplishable goal. I think that's in his thinking that a militarized America continent, you know, edge of continent to edge of continent is going to be strong. Tom Paine is the exact same way. That if we're united as a continent, there's no way that this meager army of Britain can stop us. In the um, 
colony and soon to become state of Pennsylvania alone, you probably had something like twenty to 30,000 men in the uh, militia who could be armed and who could be ready to fight. That's including, you know, both the western part of Pennsylvania and the Philadelphia militia, which just began. Philadelphia, you know, with its Quaker population, was against militia um, right before the time of the Revolution. And this was uh, John Dickinson, among others, were captains in this militia. So you probably had a fighting force of about 20,000 men that could be fielded. That's just one colony alone. And then when you consider New England and the Connecticut Yankees and the troops around Massachusetts and the Minutemen, and there's quite a considerable, the Virginia troops under Patrick Henry, George Washington, Virginia militia. I mean, there's quite a considerable fighting force aligned again. It's almost uh, the Americans outnumbering any force that the British could present despite their naval advantage. Well, the naval advantage was not insignificant. They could go and bomb seaports, essentially, and blast them. And they did in several cases. Newport, Rhode Island, uh, various towns in Massachusetts, New Bedford, the whaling town, Norfolk, Virginia. These were all victims of British assaults. They attempted to take Charleston and were beaten back. So you could see why the Americans were emboldened by this. You don't have the army to quell us, and we're going to be independent. It was thought that perhaps they would use some mercenaries. I don't think the scope of the amount of mercenaries that would be brought to northern American soil was envisioned by those people who sought independence because it had never been done like that before. Uh, German soldiers from Brunswick, Waldeck, and Altzerps, Hessenau were also brought. So there were other Germans fighting that were brought over, but the reason we are with the term Hessians is because that's the way Americans referred to it, because the principal contributor to the army was Hess Castle. So the British call up this request for 12,000 men, and they pay $20 million to uh, Cassell during the time of the Revolutionary War. And over that course of the period, they're going to get 19,000 men. This is, for Hess Cassell, 13 times their normal tax revenue. This is huge. I talked about this on the Road to Now podcast. Their business is killing. And they're making a killing. Their business <laughs> is recruiting soldiers and they're very well trained and the prince is there training every day along with them. It is the thing you do in Hesse Castell. The thing you do is train and drill and become, and they're excellent soldiers. But the reason I wanted to bring all that up is that there's a longstanding connection uh, to the British Empire. It's, it's misunderstood that these guys are just like for the day uh, mercenaries. They're like for the century mercenaries. There's a strong connection to their prince. And when they go to America and fight, they're just as much of a, of a call to honor and not to be... Um, to be dishonored as any other, as, as the Redcoats or as the Americans as well. They are, in a sense, fighting for their country, too, even though they're on a foreign soil. But they are the principal and the very good, probably the best troops of uh, His Majesty's uh, contingent in New Jersey right now. Well, one, I think one thing to add here as well is, and that, that was great. I love that rundown there because it is, it does get overly simplified because they're, you know, they're mercenaries. But it goes back to like this notion of like taking our modern expectations of why people fight mm -hmm. and post like kind of just pasting it over the past. Because the reality is this is not the era of nationalism. This is not a time when people who are fighting are fighting for this like divine cause or like their sense of home or nation mm -hmm. in the same way that later on becomes 
the way that people fight. And that is, I think, what's fascinating here is that the Hessians, yeah, they fight and they have honor, but they're not fighting for the honor. Like They're not fighting like for their country, right? Like in the same way that we think about people signing up to go off to fight. The Redcoats, by and large, aren't fighting in that sense, right? A lot of them are fighting because they were, they were destitute and, and it was a job, right? And they, they have codes of honor, but they're, they're not out there. Um, I will give my life for my country in the way that we think of soldiers now. And that's what I think is fascinating about Washington and his men, because sure, most of them don't have that ingrained in them. And, and as Washington himself pointed out in a letter that he wrote a couple months before Delaware, uh, you, you can't eat patriotism. You can't eat <laughs> anger. You got to feed people. Um, but and it allowed the prince, the Landgraf Frederick II, to keep taxes low and public spending high. He oversaw public works projects and encouraged education and some public welfare. But, you know, it was a large order. For the soldiers of this army, the prospect of fighting a war 5,000 miles away was not inspiring. But, you know, nonetheless... Uh, it was considered a duty to the country to serve in the army. But then start out well. When two regiments reached the city of Warsburg in March 1777, en route to America, a full-scale insurrection erupted when the infantry refused to stay on board the transport ships because of their crowded and filthy conditions. To, quote, persuade them to get on the ships... The elite troops among the Hessians, the sniper Jaeger troops, took positions on the heights overlooking the city docks and exchanged fire with the infantry regiments for almost two hours. So the first battle of the Hessians' fight is in Germany. Some of our troops, according to Johann Dalla, uh, who wrote a diary of the time, some of our troops were wounded in the legs, which caused a, caused a great antipathy between us and the Jaegers. The prince rides out to reach the army, tries to improve the conditions, persuades everyone to go, and they do get on the ships. Johann reported that the prince went from man to man and asked each one of them what his objections were. And he promised all kindness and princely favor to those who would go to America. The army continued their journey up the Rhine River and on March 27 boarded English transports in Holland. The transports reached Portsmouth, England on April 2nd and then sailed across the Atlantic. By June 3, 1777, after a long and stormy voyage, Johann reached New York City. He wrote in his journal that the American land is good and incomparable land. It is rich and fruitful and well-cultivated and with much grain, especially a great deal of Indian corn, and it has many and beautiful forests of both soft and hardwood trees unknown to us. He also wrote about the diversity of religion in America and wanted to explore the many ways of life in the colonies, much like his comrades. Now, this is interesting that he has this position. Now, Dola is not going to betray his country or betray his service. And generally in the Hessian mind, it's easy to think of them as mercenaries, but they were not mercenaries in the sense of one might think of them now, simply somebody like, you pay me, and I'll fight for you. And then if the Americans paid me, we'd fight for them. That's not really what it is. 
This is a long established and cultivated relationship. The Hessian fighting was indeed fighting for their country, fighting for their prince. Extremely disciplined. They're among the best soldiers in the British army. And they were, you know, of course, just like any other soldier, uh, far away from home, concerned about that, but also thinking about when they get home, would they have been seen as what they did? You know, would it be perceived as an act of honor or an act of cowardice? All of those things. They're fighting, they're, they're extremely disciplined. Life was harsh. Um, they were drilled a lot. They had officers that they respected. They liked being led by their own Hessian officers and not so much by the British officers. There were many battles fought by Hessians. They really fight the entire Revolutionary War, starting with Fort Lee and Fort Washington, and were made infamous to militiamen after the Battle of White Plains. They simply pushed the army of General Washington to the shores of the Delaware and looted and destroyed many of the beautiful homes that dotted New Jersey. Now, it is true that some Hessians... Uh, because the Americans are certainly going to encourage, particularly the German-American, who had been in America now for a 100 years. Uh, some of the German-Americans speaking the language, if they could, would try to get them to stay. And they did succeed to a degree. About 3,000 Hessians, in effect, go over to the other side or simply decide not to fight and take up farms or get work in America and decide to stay here. That is a really, though, we can exaggerate that because it's a small fraction of the 19,000 who would end up serving, but about 3,000 do uh, from what we know. There are also many casualties. So between the desertions and the casualties, only about half or about 8,000 Hessians go back home. Andreas Wiederholt is first mentioned as a German lieutenant at the Battle of New York as a member of the von Niffhausen Regiment of Hessians. Wiederhall played an important role in the capture of Fort Washington in New York City. Now, one thing that we probably don't know, because it certainly doesn't last today, is that they renamed it Fort Nifhausen after the Hessian general for a short period of time. Uh, Nifhausen was the lieutenant general who was second in command of the entire Hessian expeditionary force. Washington's army was badly defeated in New York and gradually retreated to New Jersey. The troops crossed the Delaware into Pennsylvania on December 8, 1776. Colonel Rald's brigade was made up of three regiments of Hessians. Wiederholt was quartered near Trenton. On that fateful night of December 24, 1776, Wiederholt, joined by Hessian colleagues, served as a picket near the town of Pennington, New Jersey. That night, Washington's ragtab army of 2,400, crossed the Delaware into New Jersey. Colonel Rawl had underestimated the American forces. No one really thought that Washington would now attack in winter. The Hessians were defeated by Washington's army over the course of the next few days, with victories at Trenton and later Princeton, major turning points in favor of the American rebels. Rawl was mortally wounded at the Battle of Trenton and buried in an unmarked grave. Most of the Hessians were captured, and marched across Delaware, the Delaware, into Pennsylvania. Wiederholt was among them. I was on the Road to Now podcast with Ben Sawyer and Bob Crawford at theroadtonow.com, wherever you get podcasts. It's great. We talked a bit about the Battle of Trenton 
And I think it's an interesting discussion. Because they did believe an attack was coming. Right, Bruce? It's like, mixed. Wh- There's mixed accounts of that. There are Pennsylvania loyalists that are telling them there's this tremendous movement going on here. There's also, but you also have to do, a lot of historians now say that just what we were talking about earlier, the 100 men, the Jersey militia kept attacking them, and that kept them both on their toes in a way, but also complacent. Because when they started hearing some firing, it was like, oh, that's just the darn Jersey militia again, you know, country clowns and all that. And so, um, yeah, so there's there's um, it's not like they totally discounted American attack. They just probably didn't think it would be on Christmas, not during a storm. And then also, you know, thought it was not likely. Well, in Ron Chernow's biography, actually, in Ron Chernow's biography of Washington, which is a masterpiece, he actually says that that the Hessians at Trenton had received some news that Washington and his men were attacking, and they just kind of wrote it off like, okay, they're probably not, but if they are, who cares? They suck. I mean, that's the way Chernow, I mean, that's not his words, but that's well, the way he well, did Well, okay, it. I'd like to reference David Hackett Fisher and his book, Washington's Crossing. And he tells the story of much like what Bruce said, there were these um, these like small militia bands and Washington wasn't really connected to a lot of these guys. These guys were working on their own. Mm-hmm. They were mm-hmm. causing the Hessians a lot of um, annoyance and and see the Hessians what they were exhausted and tired from from like these daily skirmishes that were more like a, I imagine like a like a fly like swatting a fly shooting at but, the patrols yeah like little tic tac stuff mm-hmm. like jumping out of the woods shooting, can't jumping sleep back in the woods you can't sleep at night anymore you don't want to do the pickets it 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 led Rawl to have less pickets because picket work was hard. So Von Dunup, he has troops, and I guess he was supposed to be in Bordenton. Bordentown? Bruce, help me out. Is it Bordentown yeah, or Borden? Bordentown? Yeah, Bordentown. Okay. Might have pronounced it differently out there. You know, it's like uh, I remember when we were at Stockton, Bob, they used to call it Trenton. The ones from people from Trenton yes, called it Trenton. <laughs> <laughs> so Von Dunup, but he he uh, he's staying in Mount Holly, and you know where Mount Holly is, mm-hmm. Bruce. And he was he met a lovely lady there, and so he wanted to stay with her. And so he was there, and he was supposed to be at the ready for Raw if he needed him. But he was with a widow; her last name was Ross, and David Hackett Fisher goes to the extent of speculating that this was Betsy Ross. Well, Fisher's the best on this, so it's a it's possible. But I love that. That's just like, you know, love exciting and new. <laughs> <laughs> you know, much like when we were at Stockton, where if you needed some help from a friend and they promised they would be there and then they don't show up when you need the help and you're like, where were you? Oh, I met this girl at the Stockton pub or at Louie's and hey, sorry, man. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Bob, Bob Smile, I feel like you not getting moved out of your apartment and the Hespians being prepared to defend, to defend territory they take it a little different, but I guess it doesn't feel that way. You know, I guess it doesn't in the moment. No, it doesn't. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? 
If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Well, let's um, if we don't mind, let's uh, let's hit with what Washington's planning here, I think, is a good okay. place to start. Washington's got a very he does very complicated. He's a good general. You know, got to got some complicated plans. You know, he's going to have a because he, he he's has some experience uh, with the British Army and he wants to um, do a three prong attack. So his force is going to come south They're They're all he's going to cross from McConkie's. Ferry, which is uh, near, not about 10 miles from Trenton. That's where his main army, that's the 2400 that Washington has. Then he's going to have a, a local Pennsylvania group, the, the Ewing, that's going across the ferry and also attack and uh, hold off any British force that might be there. And then also have Codwalders, Rhode Island, uh, Rhode Islander, also has troops that will attack in a three-pronged plan. Where did he get these boats from? They send word up and down. And when we saw it, think about the support that may or may not have been for the revolution of the country. You have to think about this. You know, they were able to procure almost every boat that was available on the Delaware. But mostly you're you're getting these Durham boats um, from McConkie's Ferry, um, which is, you know, it's also a place as a tavern there. And they dine there the night before the attack. These are large boats that would be used to, you know, because sometimes if you look at that painting, and the painting's from the 1850s, and, you know, it shows Washington in this relatively small boat standing on it while everyone's sitting down. Uh, These are large boats that are uh, used normally to transport pig iron. 
of uh, John Glover and his units from Marblehead, Massachusetts. This is a whaling town, a fishing town, and it really goes to show you the continental effort that goes in here. It's not just like the New Jersey, the New Jersey militia, the con- the Virginia general in Washington, the Rhode Island generals, the Connecticut, you know, John Sullivan and 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 uh, and others, the New York and Alexander Hamilton and his his skill. It's a real continental effort. You have these Massachusetts seafarers leading Pennsylvania boats uh, across the river and using utilizing their expertise, which was sorely needed because conditions are bad. I mean, you're talking about um, <laughs> when they launch the uh, crossing. First of all, you know, they think it's just going to take a, a few hours or so, but the conditions are horrid, and uh, it's going to take much longer to get everybody, first of all, down to the crossing point and uh, to where they need to go. There's a, there's a horrific storm. Right, right. Talk, talk about the storm. It, it's like a nor'easter, and 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 it, there was no way to know it was coming. Right, no way to know it was coming. They, they knew that they didn't have the kind of weather prediction, obviously, that we have. They knew it was December. They knew it was, it was a possibility, but it was it was almost like it couldn't be worse that the storm hit on on this day um, when they're on Christmas when they're planning this attack. Uh, this is what one officer says: Snow is worse than planned. The wind is northeast and beats in the faces of the men it will be a terrible night for those without shoes because many of these men can you imagine we're sitting here in our warm studios and everything like that can you imagine we're marching with no shoes some have old rags around their feet but i have not heard a man complain and that's what you're dealing with right there that's that's when we, I like talking about the revolution, especially when we get into discussions of American politics and everything, and people have their complaints about today or what have you. And it's like, I love going to the American Revolution because you see the absolute sacrifice. It's a, it's a war that's often depicted in paintings and things, but it was an awful, brutal war that was horrible for many people fighting it, whatever their motivations and however good the outcome. And you mentioned Henry, Henry Knox. And Henry Knox, he was transporting artillery, cannons. That's right. right across the river. That's right. They had about six. They had to get about sixteen cannon across the river, which is not an easy thing. This horrible storm, and also the river had frozen but had broken. So you have these large flows of ice. This is extremely dangerous because what you've got to do is not only oar and row on the on the boat, but also you've got to push and make sure that these flows, first of all, you have to remove the obstruction and while, you know, the wind and the, the storm is coming down on you and also uh, try to keep it from the boat because it's possible that one of these flows could... Uh, could break the boat, could put a hole in the boat. So it's, uh, you know, it was a, it was an arduous task. It took a very long time, much longer. Henry Knox is, is supervising this. Washington is also uh, supervising. There's accounts of, of seeing him on the side, you know, encouraging men to go forward, go forward, and watching the, uh, the transfer of men and cannon. So on the one hand, the storm makes everything dreadfully difficult and more complex and very uncomfortable. On the other hand, the storm provides cover for the army. 
That's true, because another element that we hadn't discussed is you have to think about you're crossing men and as you're these these heavy cannons across in these, you know, well, they're good boats, the best that, that could be had at that time. And they had transported iron in the past. They're still it's a very difficult conditions. If you're noisy, if you're allowing muskets to fire, if you're making too much noise, you could loyalists. You know, we talked about how many loyalists and I've always I've always had is not, you know, it's not like overwhelming in this area. You know, your West Jersey was a little more of a patriot ish area on the Pennsylvania side, though there were loyalists. And all you need is one to get through and warn. And now you have and the Hessians were known for their Jaegers, their uh, riflemen that could snipe. And if, you know, now what you might have a situation if they were warned is they're sniping on the river and and you're sitting ducks. So, yes, it, it, it also the storm in a way also helped to protect and and keep the operation quiet and also just increase the chances that the Hessians would say, oh, there's no way that they're uh, doing this. So meanwhile, back at the fort, back in Trenton, Washington wants to have everybody crossed by midnight. But due to the complications, things just not going the way you plan, the storm, he gets everybody across at 3 a.m. Right. So that kills the uh, attack in the darkness. They don't attack until the sun comes up, correct? Yeah, I mean, and also it takes time because there's still a distance from, from Trenton. They have to march in New Jersey a bit. So, yeah, you're not getting across that river until 4 o'clock in the morning or so. And uh, then you have to, then you're marching. They're not, um, and this is totally the plan was right to have a, you know, have everybody across by by midnight. It just takes, logistics are what they are. The sort the storm is so powerful, we should say that the other two elements of Washington's plan, Cadwalder and um, Ewing, you know, neither one is able to cross the river. Neither one's able to get in position for the time of this battle. So Washington's not undeterred. In fact, at one point, um, one of the officers says, you know, these muskets in the storm, they're going to be unusable. And Washington said, we'll take the city by the bayonet then. This is it. He knows the revolution is on the line right here and then. He will march into the city with bayonets and victory or die is what he's he's thinking at this point. Every account, and there's many um, individual soldiers' accounts of seeing Washington like up close and personal, asking questions of the soldiers. Where where do you see pickets? Okay, over there. And keep it. Say, stay here, your, your officers. Move forward, men. All you know, constantly active, constantly commanding, and being the the stern figure and and you know um, one soldier's asked by him you know where are the hessian patrols and and he doesn't know who he is <laughs> and said you don't have to worry uh, sir uh, i it is general washington who asked you the question oh sir yes you know it's very motivating <laughs> of course to see this man and it, it it informs the truth but it's going to be washington's army alone the 2400 that are going to make this march now in the morning really what becomes the day after Christmas and hope to surprise the Hessians at Trent. They don't know what condition the Trent, the, the Hessians are going to be. You hear all this talk sometimes about, oh, they were, you know, he expected them to be partying and then they'd be, you know, in a condition where they couldn't fight. But he didn't know that he was going to be attacking in the morning. He thought he was going to attack right in the middle of the the celebrations, perhaps, or even even before they got started. So it's you know it's something of a of a, of a mistake to to say that he did know 
he was attacking during a holiday when the enemy might be off, and he did know that he was attacking during a storm. And so when Washington's army arrives in Trenton, what do they find? The first thing that they, you know, Rawl has, despite his calling them country clowns, he has put up a few pickets. So you have uh, Andreas uh, Wiederholt, who's going to write a memoir and, and later and later blame Rawl for everything, as, as everyone else will do, because the prince is going to look into all of this. Um, but um, there's going to be court martials and, and, and hearings and things like that. But he has some patrols around the area of Trenton, but they're small. And indeed, actually, Washington gets very mad when, when some of his soldiers attack the uh, one of the patrols, like, you're going to warn them. But as we discussed earlier, what, what really happens is when word of that happens, some of the Hessians are, oh, that was the Jersey militia attack that they talked about. So that's over. And it actually creates, again, he gets many lucky breaks, Washington, in this, and some unlucky ones, too. But Washington's troops set up and are able to get their cannon. And this is a young New Yorker, previously from the Caribbean, student in Columbia, who has an artillery group named Alexander Hamilton. And also some of uh, John Sullivan's men are able to set up cannons on the top of King Street. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. And right there in Trenton today, there is a monument there, and that's the spot where the cannons were set up. When you're in the high ground and you have cannons set up, I mean, this just brings a smile to Washington's face, which was rare, uh, and during a <laughs> battle particularly, and and that he knows that he's set up and he starts hearing those pounders go and the Americans start firing. And now, finally, the uh, Hessians are, in a sense, you know, woken up. I mean, before the patrols could even get back to town, it's really the, the American shots that wake most of the uh, 
most of the Hessians up, not their own systems. And, you know, of course, you know, the Hessians should get a little more credit than sometimes in history. They're not just surprised and give up. They do try to mount a, a defense. They do get, you know, soldiers coming out. But they have to do this all under a withering fire. And it's very hard even for the best trained troops that her, His Majesty has to form lines and to get cannon going under enemy fire. And something else happens. Some of the residents in Trenton are firing from their houses. They don't very much like these Hessians either. Along with other captured Hessian officers, Wiederhold was initially quartered in Newton in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where Washington's headquarters were. In those days, captured officers often dined by their captors in what seems today as an unusually polite gesture. Here's what uh, the translation of Andreas Wiederholt's meeting with and impressions of George Washington are. I dined, as I mentioned earlier, with several officers and George Washington. He did me the honor to converse with me about the unfortunate affair, Trenton and Princeton. I gave my frank opinion that our situation had been very unfavorable, which resulted in our falling into his hands. He asked me how our situation could have been better. I detailed several mistakes, and I told him, how I would have handled things, and escaped. He not only praised this explanation, but elegized about my alertness and defense with my men on the picket line the morning of the attack. General Washington is a polite and refined man. He appears reserved and polite, seldom speaks, and has a crafty physique. He is not tall, but neither short and best described as average in height and waistline. He resembles... Captain von Bisenrod of my regiment. He gave me permission to go to Trenton to look for my writings there. So uh, what I'm reading to you is, you know, George Washington is partially responsible for preserving. In 1778, Wiederholt returns to Philadelphia, where he's exchanged for American prisoners. His comments about Philadelphia are as follows. Philadelphia is a large and beautiful place, which is well located for trade, but not as well as New York, because all the products of the province from the inner parts must be brought in wagons. The Delaware is navigable for some distance inland. The Schuylkill can be traveled by boats for a short distance above Philadelphia, because six or eight miles above Philadelphia, a major waterfall is to be found therein. This great city is an assembly point for all religions and nations, and therefore a mishmash of men of all sex and belief, no less of scoundrels, and I believe that it is in no way inferior to cities of Sodom and Gomorrah concerning all depravities. So says Wiederholt. So Wiederholt is going to be recaptured. It begins in 1779 when his regiment disembarks from Sandy Hook. He doesn't know where he's supposed to be going. His regiment are quartered in three transport vessels, the Triton, the Molly, and the Archer. Wiederholt and his Hessian colleagues were on the Triton, a two-masted brigantine carrying ten cannons. The ship was in bad condition. Officers had to sleep on deck, and the sailors' hammock fell apart. The sailors' hammocks fell apart after a few days. Proofies were in short supply, and vinegar and a special cleaning solution totally missing. There were only seven crew members out of what should have been a full complement of eighteen. On the way out of New York Harbor, it was apparent that the shorthanded Triton could not keep up with the other ships in the small convoy. And on September 10th, it separated from the fleet. 
and lacking specific orders. It didn't know where it was going for security purposes. It had to follow the other ships, and it couldn't. It couldn't get the proper sails up in time with the, with the reduced crew. The captain returned to Sandy Hook. This port was the principal harbor in New York for the British fleet during the Revolution. Upon the Hessians' return, they encountered other ships, which they initially identified as enemy vessels. Guns were prepared for a battle, and they were found to be in unusable condition. However, the ships turned out to be British, and the Tritons sailed into port at Sandy Hook again. On September 11th, an agent for the fleet came aboard the Triton and gave orders to sail to Quebec. He brought two totally inexperienced boys with him to augment the crew. They set sail and rapidly were blown off course in a strong gale, south to 36 degrees, 30 minutes latitude, which is at the level of Long Beach, New Jersey, over 100 miles south of their embarkation point. Two days later, the wind picked up to gale force from the northeast, and the Triton was in the grip of a severe northeastern with hurricane force winds. Here is the translation of Wiederholt's account. 15 September. The waves swirled up like frightful mountains, and the ship was on the verge of being swallowed up by the sea, where the sky was invisible, and we appeared to be buried. No ship from the fleet was visible, and what terrified us even more, no ship was visible, and what terrified us even more was that the night had fallen. One could not see one's hand before one's face. It rained and hailed incessantly. The wind roared frightfully, and the waves raged amazingly, extremely fearsome and shattering to hear. At nine o'clock, the mainmast snapped at the lowest yard arm and fell with a crash into the sea. All aboard the ship screamed, Axes! Axes! There was neither a ship's carpenter aboard, nor one axe on the ship otherwise to be had. It was fortunate that several of our officers brought their axes along. One needed to chop away the rigging and the mast, which was now hanging overboard, to avoid having the ship pulled under and capsizing. We hadn't finished doing all this when even a louder crack. The foremast broke right over the deck of the ship. We hastened to clear the decks with increased vigor and ship totally lost her heading into the wind. Angry waves pushed us to and fro with even more force so that the ship would list completely on her side and take in water. These gruesome waves battered us from all sides and even in the stern. We had the nail shutters over the glass window panes. As we were doing this, a wave struck us with such force that the captain was thrown by a stream of water all the way across his cabin floor. In all the to and fro, from the forceful motion of the boat's guns, they ripped loose from their moorings and rolled back and forth across the main desk. These are super heavy cannons now that they're dodging on the on the deck as they're rolling forth. They crashed into the galley and knocked a huge kettle loose. The four cannons now loose broke through the gunwall and crashed into the sea. The fifth cannon also broke loose and fell through a hatchway into the bilge of the ship, right past where the soldiers were on the lower deck. The cannon came to rest, wedged between two water barrels, and we lashed it to those with a rope. The sixth cannon, it slid back and forth until it crashed into the ship's wheel and splintered the ship's wheel into bits. The sailors refused to try and secure the rolling cannon and returned to their bunks, being afraid to lose an arm or a leg 
in stopping it. All of our possessions lay strewn around the ship. All felt that the last moments of their lives had come. In this saddened state, I crawled around below, sick with fear, and spoke to the men trying to raise their spirits. God who had brought us into this danger was also the powerful God who will deliver us if we can get the cannon overboard and work the pumps to free the ship of water and let her then float. Daybreak will come, and heaven will send us help by clearing the weather or sending a ship to our aid. My speech was initially without effect. The men were stubborn, and some answered they were too sick and could not hope. I will tell you that they all very well knew that I was sick, with fever for more than four weeks, and very ill when I boarded the ship. But out of concern for them, and in our desperate situation, I tried to find a way to help. I did not doubt that some of them had more strength than I, and cared enough to follow my lead. I wished to remain on deck and share their fate, since I had faith that both we and the ship could survive. But no one seemed to respond until I asked if there was no junior officer who was healthy and whether a single Hessian soldier had the courage to help and follow me. So Sergeant Hillebrand, Corporals Orstadt, and Kustner came forward, followed by another 15 to 20 men. The appeal to patriotism had worked. Remember we were talking earlier about the Hessian pride. Okay, I said, let's get the last cannon loose and free it up so we can heave it into the water. After several attempts with great danger to life and limb, we managed to get it overboard. One fusilier sustained two broken arms, and I crushed a small finger on my left hand. We then manned the pumps, and four men continuously worked to lash them to the stump of the mast. They had to switch off every six to eight minutes because they could not stand, but had to kneel to work the pumps, and the pumping lasted until three or four in the morning when they finally broke and were no longer serviceable. Due to darkness, we could not repair them. So we fixed a large bucket to a rope and bailed by hand until the long-awaited morning broke and we could begin to fix the pumps. Now, a marvelous event occurred that must be told. During the severe motion of our ship, one of Colonel Hamill's fusiliers called Eckerd was thrown overboard. He disappeared rapidly, but somehow managed to just barely cling to the side of the ship. He cried for help, but went unheard and was missed by the crew. He was hanging onto the ship and repeatedly called for help. Then a huge wave came and washed him right back onto the deck. The wave had saved the poor fellow for long and healthy life. Truly a wonderful rescue. Meanwhile, the captain and the helmsman and the other crewmen walked around the ship with lanterns, attempting to free some of the ship's boats. I inquired whether they wanted to save themselves and questioned them about their action. Oh, nothing. I only see if they are fast enough. I didn't trust him and demanded he hand me the lantern for a moment. I passed them on to my men and took the captain by the arm and led him away beyond his cabin. I know exactly what you attend. You are fixing the boats to escape and leave us stranded on this ruined ship. We will perish since we have no knowledge of the sea or navigation. I can assure you, this will not happen. You will and must remain with our men until the last one is dead and we will be the last to die. I inform you that you are arrested and confined to your cabin. So Wiederholt has now arrested the captain and turned him over to his lieutenant, who had been sick but had the strength to ensure the captain was confined.
Then I went back to the deck and further encouraged the men. The corporals came back and told me the captain had tried all kinds of tricks and pleas to get out of the captain by conspiring with the helmsman. The corporals came again and reported the captain wanted to relieve himself and get out of the captain. I refused and told him he could do it in the cabin. It was already soaked anyhow. I went into the captain then in the cabin and implored him to be silent and go to sleep. He and the helmsman had some kind of secret conversation. I demanded he be silent in the cabin. I reported this to my superior officer, who was very ill, but he approved of what I had done and requested I try to do whatever was necessary to sustain our men, since he felt too ill to come on deck. Day broke. We saw the really miserable condition of the ship. What a loss we had suffered. We were in grave danger. All food supplies, vegetables, four lambs were lost overboard or lay dead in a corner of the ship. An anchor was lost. The ship's boat that had come loose were smashed and now useless. We threw them into the sea. There was no chance for escape. So now we let the captain free. We remained in this sad condition until midday, when the wind abated somewhat, and the sea and waves calmed and became smaller. No one can really describe such a miserable experience with enough emphasis, and only those who have actually experienced it can really comprehend. The next day, the sky gradually cleared and the wind remained from the north. We determined that we were located at 37 degrees, 19 latitude. That's east of Cape Charles, Virginia. That's how far we had been pushed down in the storm. Pretty far from Sandy Hook, New Jersey. But how far east in the ocean were we? We couldn't tell. How far were we from the coast of Virginia? The ship's captain was not skilled enough to determine it. Our first priority was to clean up the ropes, sails, and spars, and to clear the gun walls and go into the hold to inspect the damage and look for leaks. Luckily, we didn't find any. The men came on deck to dry their things, but no one had a dry stitch of clothing. Everything was soaked and covered with black slime. Most of the food was spoiled to the dismay of the ship's cook. The cartridges were all sort of stuck together and unusable. Everything was ruined. Well, it's going to go on for a few more days, and they're going to attempt to make it to the Delaware Bay. About nine days later, <laughs> on this boat, in these conditions, a very beautiful morning, but a sad and unlucky day. At daybreak, I saw relatively far off two sails in the windward. I jumped for joy up to the captain's cabin to inform the colonel and the other officers. We went on deck and complimented ourselves that we were out of New York and sent to the aid of ships, perhaps damaged in the hurricane. As mentioned, the two ships came at us from the Green Sea and not from the enemy's shore to the leeward. They could bring us into the harbor and protect us from swarming privateers. We were in miserable condition. And according to the captain, we're in no way to maneuver and escape. We kept the two ships in close view since they were passing us. Nevertheless, we still believed they were coming to aid us. But oh, we're totally betrayed in our hope. As they came near enough to see the 13 striped red and white ensigns flying, our joy morphed into sadness. Could we come about our escape? My superiors and the captain and helmsman told us 
this was impossible. We had to rely on ourselves and could not put our previous plans for deception into play because there were two privateers who would overwhelm us or sink us easily. It was scarcely 8 a.m., and they were alongside us. On the starboard side was the schooner Mars, with 14 cannons, commanded by Captain Taylor. And to the port, the shallop Comet, with 10 cannons, commanded by Captain Decatur. Both ships were heavily manned. They held our helmsman to lower the sail and put the helm hard in starboard, which he did. They then lowered the boat and boarded us with a lieutenant of five crewmen. We were lashed to the schooner Mars and towed to Barnegat Inlet, where we anchored. The shallop lay near us, but the schooner, in which the Triton's captain and three of our soldiers had been taken, sailed continuously onward. Weather was beautiful, but a thick fog surrounded our moods and hearts when we thought about our current and future misery. The anchor was weighed, and the intention of the privateers was to tow us to the Delaware Bay and up to Philadelphia. We were because a distant ship to the southwest changed our minds, we were instead towed to the mouth of Little Egg Harbor in New Jersey until nightfall. They anchored due to the frequent sandbars. Vederholt disembarked and arrived at Egg Harbor, which was an important stopping-off village for privateers on the way to western New Jersey to sell their captured prizes. The Hessian party arrived in Philadelphia some ten days later, they were quartered at the Golden Swan Inn at 3rd and Arch Streets. Soon they were taken before the Board of War and commanded to remove to Reading, Pennsylvania, where they arrived on the 15th. Wiederhall took private lodgings for a guinea per month. It was not until July 1780, almost a year later, that the Hessians were exchanged. We don't have any more from Wiederhall in his diary, but... We do know just from his relatives that he was one of the Hessians that made it back. And as we discussed, about half of them were not so lucky. And of that other half, about 3,000 deserted and became Americans, and 5,000 or so were killed in action. The significance of uh, the Hessians in the Revolutionary War you know, cannot be overstated. Um, it, it's what gave the British Army its punching force, that and its Navy, in order to prosecute the war and to stretch out the war as long as it did. Now, there was some surprises. Um, although the the Principality of Hesse was set for war, it was used to excursions and then to get their troops back. Um, this was a much more deadly and costly expedition it also was a lot of troops. It was a big order for the German principalities. And what we see after the Revolutionary War is the end of this practice. And Hess Cassell goes back to farming and other um, activities rather than renting out its force because of the large amount of casualties during the Revolutionary War. I want to thank you for listening. I really want to thank you for your support this year. Your support, either on the Patreon or on uh, Premium Podcast, really make this extra content possible. And um, I did add advertisements to the podcast this year, but I also think we've been able to get more content out the door. So, um, you know, it's a trade-off. <laughs> Appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.